There's a lot of conversation among IT security leaders about engaging the workforce in order to mitigate threats. But how do security professionals actually win people over to their side? Many employees are willing to comply, but what can be done to really get through to those that are resistant? Johanna Baum, the CEO and founder of S3, contends that in order to enact change, leaders must involve those that are most reluctant to go along with security protocols, especially the person still keeping their login password on a post-it note on their computer. In order to change the security culture of a company, Johanna suggests seeking out the person at a company who is actually least likely to comply. Who's your most difficult employee? Who's the guy who's gonna look at this and then throw it in the circular bin? Like, yeah, I'm gonna file that over here in my trash. I don't wanna look at it, I don't wanna deal with it, I got my post-it note, I'm solid. That's the guy I wanna talk to because that's gonna be where my biggest vulnerability is. So we talk to him, we let him test, we make sure him or her that they are part of the process. Even though they sometimes don't wanna be, they end up kind of getting a kick out of it because it's something that in the long run, I can keep them there and complying, it definitely reduces risk for the company. IT security threats seemingly are everywhere, and it certainly can be overwhelming for organizations trying to respond to them. Companies must respond to outside threats, and unfortunately, even some internal ones too. Gaps in the credentialing process and the rise of remote work and hybrid work are only increasing security risks. Furthermore, it can be very challenging to get employees in line in following security directives. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Johanna breaks it down in simple terms. There has to be buy-in from all employees, and it's incumbent on leadership to track down and engage the recalcitrant crowd. Also, there are basic things that can be done to promote security, like individuals securing passwords or entire companies maintaining an accurate list of their own users. She also shares her career journey from accounting to IT security and founding her own company. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest, CEO and founder of S3. The S3 stands for Strategic Security Solutions. I won't say that again. It'll be now S3. Johanna Baum, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right, Johanna, right out the gate, we want to know what is S3 and what does it do? Yeah, so I founded S3 16 years ago, uh, and our focus originally was really on application security. Now our focus really is, you know, how do we build sustainable security culture through people-first solutions? And that sounds like a whole bunch of words, but really, you know, when it gets down tactically, we're enterprise governance, risk, and compliance, you know, which is under an identity umbrella. But we really just marry getting that security culture embedded into an organization and how do the people relate to that? So technology is kind of the easy part. How do we really get that culture, sustainable culture and people injected into technology? So we've had a couple of cybersecurity experts on the show, and it is a theme that human element has been repeated a couple of times. And we ask every single time because it's a different opinion everywhere. But, you know, when an outsider hears of security, they think they usually probably think of the actual tools, processes. Hey, this is how you secure a network. This is like most people default to, I think, more binary decision making. But we keep finding out that different people approach it different ways. What do you mean by the human element specifically? Like how do you guys approach this problem? Full transparency. All of our guests so far have said that like basically cybersecurity is like 
it's like an effort game. Like you're going to do your best effort, but you can't actually stop everything because it's impossible to know what people are doing. So you want to build cultures to prevent that. And I'd love to know if you think the same and what that means to you. Yeah. And that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Like our whole industry will never be successful. Like, <laughs> or at least it's an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle. It is true. I mean, we're, we're working as fast as we can to beat people who have an unlimited amount of funds and all of the motivation to do something bad just because they want to or for financial gain or just for damages. So they, they have every desire to do it. We're trying to protect every organization from that type of attack. We're trying to make them more informed. And how do we do that is really through people. We can put as much technology as we can into that process. We can layer on as much technology as we can purchase. That doesn't mean everybody's going to use it or use it effectively or how we intended for it to be used to protect the organization. So it's still back down to people. How are we having that open dialogue with, with employees, with vendors, with contractors, you know, anybody that has credentials to an organization? How are we protecting and really enabling them and giving them the education for what we want to protect so that they're acting as that you know, good steward for the organization. When we think about identity, it's really, I mean, I would say it's the easiest example. It might be the most complicated, but really anybody that holds credentials to any type of organization is really, again, a steward or protector of that information. So again, whether you're an employee, whether you're a contractor, if somebody gives you an authentication mechanism and then the ability to have authorizations into a company, any data that you have access to, you need to protect. So how do I inform that user and give them the education for one, those credentials are important to us. We're giving you this and trusting you with that relationship. So please protect and respect that relationship. And why is that so important? So going through that education with them of this is what we're deploying. This is how you uh, end user in whatever camp you are, employee or non-employee, you know, how do we protect that? And how do I educate them on the potential threats that they could see since they are holders of that is really important. So that, that education, you know, we give them a good plan to educate all their internal users, all their vendors, their contractors, again, all of these different employee populations, or if it's, you know, bots, how do we look at protecting that? And eventually somebody owns that relationship. So making sure they know how important those credentials are. So the education platform, and then why are we deploying this in the first place? You know, you've got executive support, but for everyone that's in the middle of that deployment, which is everyone in the organization, why do they care? If they have no connection to, to that and why it's important, you know, they're not going to protect information. What is it to them? The interesting thing we see that's happening, and it seems to be happening more and more, is that the old way of cybersecurity was people thought, oh, that they would hack hack something and be able to steal information and then leverage it. But the new way of hacking is like convincing somebody to give them critical information, which is pretty interesting. I was reading this thing about Hush Puppy. Do you know who Hush Puppy is? I think so. I know what you're talking about. For those who are listening and not familiar, Hush Puppy was an Instagram influencer who seemingly had endless sums of money and he would do motivational Instagram posts about how you have to achieve your dreams. And it seemed like, you know, he'd do it in front of his Rolls Royce or whatever. He had seemingly endless amount of money. Well, he's been already been arrested. He turns out he was running one of the biggest cybercrime syndicates out there. But how they did it was, I guess, for most people, it would be much less technical. Like they would get on the inside, right? But then they would mask themselves as people on the inside with their cohorts. And they were doing things like calling up the accounts payable person, like, oh, we need a new, we need a new account number. 
our new account number is this. And the person would be like, oh, okay, yeah, we got to change the account number to the right one. And then boom, you just transfer $10 million because you're paying whatever you're paying and uh, they'd be gone. They flee with the money. And I was like, dude, I cannot believe this. There was one instance they had a case where the person was sending them money for six months, they said. I believe it was a professional sports team, like sent them 50 plus million dollars. And nobody noticed. Yeah, someone else raised their hands. Hey, you haven't paid us in six months. Like, oh, yes, we have. And so there's this whole new thing about this. It's like this foreign threat. It's like something outside. But now it's like the actors are coming to the inside of your networks and like they're they're impersonating people. And so I can see how that culture, that like that education of like how you really have to be, I don't know if it's paranoid is the right word, but you got to be suspicious. What's the word you teach the executives? Like, hey, you have to be X to prevent this. What is, what is X? I'm not going to go with paranoid. I feel like it might, <laughs> I feel like it yeah, may, yeah, have a, yeah, may have a negative connotation. But no, I mean, they have to be vigilant. They have to be aware and educated. Let's go back two steps to say, we're just pleasers. People like to make other people happy. We like to fulfill their request. So if somebody calls and says, hey, hey, I'm having a trouble with this account number. Can you look it up? Yeah, sure, I can do. Because our, our general posture is, I just want to help that person. And of course, they're probably genuine in asking me this question. Why would anybody take the time to ask me for that? If they, like, Why would they be in here doing this if they didn't really need it? Especially they mask it as like a person of authority. It's like, right. you would be like, oh, this is a normal request. Yeah. How are you doing? How's everything going? So I just, I'm having this issue. This guy called me. You're like, oh yeah, I have that all the time. Let me just look it up really quickly. Like, you know, they have a couple of casual questions back and forth and yeah, you answer it and you're done. And you think, oh, well, that's great. I helped somebody today. You know, it's the same question as, okay, the IRS will never call me. My bank typically doesn't make an inbound call for me to confirm a million things. And if I do get that, I immediately hang up the phone because I'm going to call the bank directly. I'm not going to accept the inbound call. I want to call them and make sure it's legitimate. But those are the things that people just respond to because they want to help. We try to retrain. And we're, when we're talking to people, it's, okay, I get it. I know you're trying to be helpful. There's a few ways that we can verify that you're actually being legitimately helpful versus now just giving the farm away because <laughs> they quickly bleeds into, oh my gosh, I just contributed to this, you know, this theft or the ability for somebody to get those credentials come into the network and either exfiltrate data or, you know, have a ransomware attack. I mean, it takes less than two seconds for them to send in this mass, you know, phishing attempt for somebody to click on it and they're already in the network. It doesn't take long to just have the conversation and continually educate them on, you know, it's not that you're not being nice. We're just being vigilant to protect. We're being educated so that you're protecting the the organization for what's most important to them on the data front. Give us like what an engagement looks like, because I'd love to understand how you, again, I love the mission. I think the mission is totally valid, right? It makes total sense. But then the question becomes, how? How does this happen? Because I think it's easy for anyone to say, hey, we want to get you guys more involved. We're going to get you guys to care. We want to be a culture of learning. We need you to be a culture of vigilance. But then how does that happen? You know, I'd love to use the examples that you have for identity access management, right? It's one of your fortes and strengths. And I agree. Like when we, so at my last company that we, inst- we chose Okta to be our governing thing, I can tell you that not that much thought went into it. It was like, oh, okay, we'll just connect up Okta and connect up all the tools to Okta. And then Okta will take care of everything. It was kind of like, yeah. I'm not saying that was a good, you know, that was kind of our <laughs> positioning on that. Okta became our identity access management solution. There's a, there's many out there, but we would just log in, you know, it would give us access to all the tools we need. And there was a team that provisioned access, you know, because we would need access to Jira. We would need access to all these things. It seemed relatively simple. We probably didn't do the right thing, but, you know, we, we did what we did. 
give us an idea of how you like start these engagements because I think there's a lot of people probably with what the attitude I just displayed, which is there's another tool. It's already taken care of. This is not a big problem. Yeah, not not my deal. I'm not responsible for this. They just put they put Okta or tool du jour in, and now I just wait for it to provision. Or somebody needs me to approve something, I just rubber stamp it. No big deal. Obviously, we hear that all the time. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it comes in as we have no idea. Is it Okta? Is it SailPoint? Is, you know, wh- what are we supposed to use? So we help them walk through what technology they need. But then after that, we definitely hear the, all right, well, you just take it from here. No, no, no. You're actually engaged in the process. We need to know how the business, you know, we want to talk to you about how the business works. We have some recommendations, but you know, you were talking earlier about, no, no, I want dependable, sustainable. Like I don't need, I don't need new stuff all the time. I mean, it's the same thing. This is, you've been doing as business processes for however long you've been in business. I don't know how much you've adapted, evolved. I'm going to help you get there, but I can't just rip through it, change your whole provisioning process overnight and not have people get frustrated and try to circumvent it. So, you know, we'll walk in in your Octa scenario, talk about, all right, what do you do every day? Talk to me about what pain you have with provisioning. Does it take six months to get somebody the access they need? Do they get a computer? Do they get a badge to enter into, you know, secure facilities? So all of those are still related to identity and the application that you picked so that I can automate provisioning. So it's not just to data, but it's to things. How do I provision those assets to you? So once they start thinking about that, like, oh, that is pretty pervasive. <laughs> they, get, they get more annoyed when they think about how much it really affects and how many people are involved in it. And then they get more invested. Like, yeah, we can fix this. I think there's a lot involved in, in us being able to just provision something to a person provisioning the data, provisioning the asset and protecting it. So putting in Okta and then getting them constantly looking at, all right, now how do I make sure that that person is who they say they are? They're still that person. The things that they're accessing are still predictable. They still need it. They're still here. Sometimes they leave, nobody pays attention to it. So that's hundred percent all the time. Cause it's not connected to your HR tool, which you might not have one. Yeah. A lot of companies just straight up don't have one, especially smaller companies. Yep. Then there is no automated flag system that says, boom, decommission these provisions and access points for X number of people. Yeah. And terminated employees are, I mean, we've had some funny scenarios where we were alerted to issues because this is not funny, but somewhat IT funny that the person was deceased. So we had a warehouse worker that was deceased. It was a big you know, deal for them locally. And then that those credentials were still being accessed in the system. And we just happened to say, oh, this is a little weird. <laughs> These are not background jobs. Clearly somebody is logging in with his credentials and it's definitely not him. Did anything really bad happen? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. What ultimately happened? They relieved a significant amount of inventory out the back door in the middle of the night. Wow. We were able to triangulate it with several different ways that we were able to figure this out because they had RF devices. We were able to pinpoint where it was coming from, what time it was happening, and then physically have somebody on the premises to go find where this person was because it clearly wasn't really wasn't the person who was the original owner of the credentials. It's an easy example because we can physically go get that person. But what if it's, you know, now in this virtual environment, people are everywhere. I mean, you don't hear from the guy that doesn't need access anymore. He's not going to complain that he has too much, or if he's gone, he's certainly not calling back to say he or she to say, Hey, I don't really need that anymore. I'm not here. So, you know, the terminated employee with valid credentials. Or they don't know. They don't know that their machine is still active or they're like, why would I know my user? If I leave, 
You can do whatever. I'm not yeah, going to pay that's attention. That's not to my it. problem. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah not- that's not my problem. And the manager, if they're not, if it's not part of it, a, a certification request, and they're not immediately triggered, like you're saying, it's not connected to HR. So they know, hey, this is a term employee, term contractor. I don't need these credentials. Why would they look at it unless they're forced to do something? So this is where we talk to them about no, 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 that has to be automated. I don't want you to think. I'm going to think for you. This brings up an interesting point because we've had a couple other cybersecurity experts on our show and talked about one of the newer threats, which people are starting to think of, like how do we technologically solve this, is is the person in front of the computer actually who you thought it was, which I thought was pretty interesting because we all now work. Well, we don't all work, but there's a lot of us that work remote or hybrid. There's a lot of people live in let's call it cohabitation or co-working environment. Even if I choose to go to, you know, there's new offices that now rent to individuals. Like they can rent, they can say, Johanna, you for a hundred bucks a month, you can come in here and use any desk in the place so that you don't have to be at home and listen to your dog barking or whatever. Right. So there's tons of commingling now. There's more commingling and people working in different environments all the time. So the next phase they said they were talking about is like, well, how do you know the person in front of the computer is actually who they say they are? So they said, because if you use your phone, and you're logged in, even if you had 2FA and you had a tracking chip on the phone, we could be the phone is next to the computer. The person used the code. If that person gets up to walk away and another person sits down and does something, there's nothing to stop that. How do you stop that? No, I mean, you know, the old school example, when I went through training a million years ago in audit, I came from an audit background. If you left your screen up and it wasn't on a screensaver, there was no password on it. Anybody who was in the room would go on your machine and send any number of messages out. Wait, this is where you worked? Yeah, yes. And I worked for a very large firm. The accountants are savage. I didn't realize. Oh, yeah. No, they're out for blood, man. As soon as one person had that happen, you're like, oh, no, wait. I got screen closed. I'm taking my computer with me. Like, you only need to hear that less than once to do that. But it's it's not the same now. People forget. You get out of the habit of doing that. So, yeah, if you walk up, you go to another room, there's other people in your house. I mean, my kids could come on my machine and start to do whatever they, you yeah, know, no, no, I don't do that in, the, in this house. <laughs> like I make sure the machine is locked. I make sure I go through that because I don't want them on here, but that doesn't mean everybody operates like that. You can't work in spaces like that and not have that be a risk. So putting in those revalidation, you know, is this still you? Are you still there? It's still, you know, you have shorter triggers for logouts when people are inactive. So there's definitely, you know, technical, there's software that we can put in to make sure that we're continually revalidating that or checking the activity to make sure it's still that person. You know, that seems highly logical and also seems kind of puzzling that someone wouldn't think of that. What are some of the things that are highly logical, highly commonsensical, but you still find surprising that when you go to different clients or prospects and you suggest these, let's say, widely recommended and accepted practices, they're still like, oh, great great idea. It's like an epiphany every single time because they have never thought about that. Are there a handful of those solutions that you constantly, because we should just put them out there right now and be like, hey, listen, if you're listening to us on IT Visionaries and you have not done this, this, or this, you should start there, right? What are some of those things that you you would say, hey, you should you should start here? Like, hey, have you thought about this? Oh, yeah. I mean, we get the blocking and tackling all day that we go to clients and we're like, okay, why haven't we started here? Like, we still have some pretty fundamental topics. We were just talking about logout times. I mean, that, that, that is an old one. We shouldn't even have a conversation about logout. You should not be indefinitely logged in with no verification or reconfirmation. People still are wowed by that. I mean, and that's 
How many years have we? It's because it's annoying, Joanna. <laughs> it's no. very simple. It's I don't want to re-log in every single time. Like, why do I? Why is this a policy? Uh, yeah, I mean, passwords are everyone's annoyance. Why do I have to log in at all? Yeah. Why do I have to validate? Why do I have to check my phone? I got to. Okay, I, I hear you. I would love for this to not have to challenge you. I still have to validate at some level. We need a you know a minimum level of assurance that you are who you say you are. I would love for that to be simpler, but yeah, I mean, logout times, you know, two factor, some are using none of that. They're not validating the person. They've got one single password for everything. And that one password is very well known. There's no exception tables to stop them from using their name or the word password as their password. So, you know, that sounds like, you know, for starters, why are you not there? It happens. It happens all over the place. You talked about companies that don't have a single source of, you know, a single HR solution or a single source of an identity central data store. That happens all the time. No, we've got people all over. We haven't really, you know, we thought it would be best if each application owner would own that. I mean, we hear that kind of stuff all the time. So at least putting in, you know, the, again, we just call it blocking and tackling. Do you know where all your users are? Do you have a central repository to store at least no. who those people are. Yeah, no, too hard. We definitely recommend that. You, you got to have that. I mean, we have to know who is where so we can make sure we know what they have access to and how do I get them out when I need to? So sounds easy, but we hear that a lot. This is why I think this conversation highlights why security is actually more of a human problem than a technical problem is because the reason why any of these problems exist is because we just don't want to be inconvenienced. That's my, that's my take. We as humans don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to re-log in. We don't want to carry around 2FA tokens. We don't want to do any of that. So therefore we create the holes. It's not a technical problem. This is a, this is a behavior problem. Yeah. We try to combat that and to put some kind of a mitigating process in. All right. Well, let's think, I mean, this is like going into testing. A user will break anything. We never came up with that scenario because why would you? But somebody will. We hand over a test scenario. Somebody's going to break it. That just happens. I love to watch those type of things. And it's the same with identity. We put in a solution. I'm like, all right, let's pick who's going to break this. Because, you know, somebody's going to go around the process. They're going to figure out a way to have a free form field where they don't have to put anything in and then bring it back to a manual process instead of automating this like it should. It's going to happen. So how do I make it as easy as possible and sustainable for the organization where people will adopt it? They feel like, okay, this actually helps me. There's not so much friction that I don't want to be a part of it, but I know the risk because I'm going to be accountable for there. If there's a problem, I know this is going to come back to me. So how do I get invested in it? And that's where we can get them. Okay. This is not so much pain. This works for me (laughs) in my day-to-day. I can contribute favorably to this process. So, and I know what the risks are if I don't, they have to believe in it. Yeah. I mean, not gonna lie. It sounds like an uphill battle. People will try to figure out the least amount of effort in the things that they don't like to do. So like we naturally, we all, I don't care who you are, if you're a mom or dad out there listening to this and you like preach to your kids, I'm telling you every adult does the same thing. We always are looking for shortcuts. We just, it doesn't matter what the policy is. It doesn't matter what the process is. If, if I'm not going to get terminated over something or I'm not getting my job evaluated or something, I'm probably not going to do it. I'm like, I, like yeah, I am one of those right. employees. You know what I mean? Like uh, I remember back in the day. No, I love you're like, you're my favorite test case. I, I'll remember. I'll tell you this. Like, well, I'm not trying to rat out my wife, but you know, I'll rat her out. When she worked at one of the big four accounting firms, I remember once she had like a, uh, a sticky pad on her, um, on her computer. And I, I know you've seen this. And I was like, what is this? She goes, this is my password. They made us have like these really crazy ones. I was like, why don't you use a password generator? They said, we're not allowed to have one. 
the policy at that time, this is predates. This is like 2015, this is like 2014, 2015. So it's a little antiquated, but they weren't allowed to centrally store all their passwords in like, like a one pass or a last pass. And it was on a sticky pad. And I was like, why did they think this is more safe? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> it was written down. Yeah. And it was our policy. So we could point to it when somebody asked, do you have a documented policy? Absolutely we do. It's right here. Does anybody follow it? Well, no. Yeah. They said like the, the, the policy was like, don't keep your passwords on your computer. I was like, okay. but <laughs> yeah, It's not in the computer, but what about a sticky pad? physically on top of the computer. And I've, I, and I've still seen that. I've got, I've been to like Twitter's offices. I've seen it like straight up. Like it's on like the person's like, you know, the upper left-hand corner of their monitor. It's like, okay, this is my S3 vault password. Because she wasn't policed, it wasn't governed and she wasn't going to get terminated over it. She didn't follow the policy. And I, and I did the same thing. I'm guilty myself. When I was a sales rep, they would be like, oh, you have to enter your notes. I never entered my notes. If I closed the deal, I definitely didn't enter my notes. Cause I'd be like, what's the point? I closed the deal. Like, I'm done. Yeah. You don't care about my notes. I, I won. We're good. What about like some of the cultural behavior things that you educate teams on, like how to incentivize? Because I believe that's true still today, which is a policy is a policy, but people following the policy, that's completely great. It's not clear if anyone does that. Yeah. And this, you, again, you're my best use case. We look for you for engagements. Like most companies are like, no, no, no I don't want to deal with that guy. He's going to be way too much trouble. We're never going to get out of here. We're, you know, we just need the path of least resistance to deploy technology and get out. We would say exactly the opposite. I want to find you. I'm going to be looking for you when I go to talk to the client. Who's your most difficult employee? Who's the guy who's going to look at this and then throw it in the circular bin? Like, yeah, I'm going to file that over here in my trash. That's the guy I want to talk to. Everyone else is probably going to comply. I mean, most people, because we're pleasers, are going to follow the policy if I make it relatively easy and painless for them. But there's that guy who's not going to do it because he doesn't want to, because he doesn't care, because I'm just going to find a way out. I want that person in front of me. I want to talk about how to make it easier for him because that's going to be where my biggest vulnerability is. And, you know, we make sure that they are part of the process, even though they sometimes don't want to be, they end up kind of getting a kick out of it because it's something that in the long run, I can keep them there and complying. It definitely reduces risk for the company. But yeah, you're the guy I'm looking for. If you can keep your Mavericks in line, then yeah, you're, you are better off. I'm curious, how did you get into this field? Because we did, we did some homework on you. Did you work at one of the big four accounting firms? I did. You so say you were in accounting. How did you end up in cybersecurity? I know, crazy. Yeah. And it, it, oddly, I started in tax, which I rarely tell anyone. Auditor. Yeah. They sent you all. Their, oh, yeah. We looked up Ian Wine, like auditor. That means you were on the, you lived on the road, living out of your suitcase. Yes, I did for a long time. Yeah. And it, you know, tax was a quick stint. And then I moved straight to audit, but I was IT audit. And at the time they didn't know what to do with us. It was a very confusing group because security was still completely foreign to most. So it was a lot of IS audits and AS 400 work, which again, I'm almost embarrassed to say how old that is, but I really was not a great auditor because I asked too many questions. I mean, I and not audit questions. I was like, why do you do that? I, why? And in accounting, that's just, look, we follow, it's very easy. It's compliance. We got a yes or no. We can live in a little bit of gray, but you know, this is financial accounting. We don't, we don't really have much latitude. I really wanted to break things and then put them back together. I wanted to change a business and figure out you know, how they could evolve. And that is definitely not the accounting mantra. So as soon as I got you know, all the hours for my license, they were like, okay, so we think it's probably best for you to move on to consulting, which is where I wanted to be anyway. So I kind of quickly got out of accounting. I loved it. I think it's a great foundation for somebody in IT because 
you do know how the business works. I know where the dollars are flowing. I know what executives care about, you know, from a street standpoint, from a financial standpoint, you know, what they're reporting, what their stakeholders are looking for, what they're held accountable for inside the organization. I also know from an IT standpoint, I can't do that. I can't automate that. Oh, wait, maybe I can. So it really gives you that, the intersection between how the business works and how I can enable it with technology that most people, I think, don't have these days. So, you know, that's super fascinating. And then you're crossing the bridge, you're working very closely with different products. It looks like specifically SAP getting super well-versed in that. What made you decide to, hey, I'm going to branch out on my own. I'm going to do my own thing. Because, you know, you had, by all accounts, pretty cool role. It seems like you're invested in it. It seems like you like it. What made you say, hey, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to go do my own thing? Yeah. I mean, I got really lucky. I would say I'm the accidental founder or accidental CEO because somebody, you know, I, I was at that standpoint or at the you know, crossroads of, all right, I'm going to continue to build this practice you know, for Capgemini at the time. And my mother's the one that said, you know, just so we're clear, they own your brain. Everything that you're developing, they will own. That's not a bad thing. Just remember that that's, you're giving them all of your intellectual capital, which is great. And at the time I was really invested in it. But then I, I had an opportunity from a colleague who really needed you know, a security firm to do kind of what I was really trying to do and, and having some difficulty building. And he said, just do it on your own. Like, why don't you just start something, come out here and let's try it. And it was a huge pharma. And I felt like, do you really want to take a gamble on this? I feel like I'm not quite ready for this. And he was like, nope, absolutely. Let's roll the dice. So overnight, I just you know, stood up a company and kind of flew out there and that was it. Wait a second. So you got so someone, you're working for a big pharmaceutical or you're working on a project that's interconnected to a big pharmaceutical company in, somehow, or this person knows you. Well, not yet. Don't give me legal trouble. Not at all connected with my, with, not with my all. employer. Yeah. Totally separate. Yeah. Yeah. So someone gives you a chance and you're like, Hey, I'll, I'm going to bid on this job. Was there anyone that you needed like uh, reassurances from? Were you by yourself just saying, I'm doing this? Or did you have to like seek guidance, advice? Like what was the decision process behind that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I first one I called was my mother and said, all right, so I think I'm taking my brain back. Like, do you, is this a- <laughs> Taking my brain back. <laughs> <laughs> like, is this a bad idea? I would kind of like to own it. Is that, can we do this? And yeah, I mean, she's, she's always been on her own as an attorney or she, you know, was in private practice for a good bit. So she kind of gave me some guidance, but I called a friend who had done something similar and he said, yeah, I mean, it feels like a cliff. It is absolutely going to feel like you're plummeting to the bottom of a cliff, but just take a step because it, it's going to be a curb. So he was right. I definitely asked for you know a couple of people that I really respected. Is this something that you think is a horrible, <laughs> am I making the worst decision ever? And they're like, what well, if it is, you can just go back. Like how many firms would hire you to go back and build the same practice you already built? They were right. I mean, I loved where I was. This was a great opportunity. If it didn't work, I would just go back. So yeah, I, I rolled the dice. And within, I think, six months, we, clearly we got the work. <laughs> yeah, huge global pharmaceutical company. Fantastic project. And we took over all of security. And it was on the SAP side. And then we started bleeding into identity. And then you know, it just kind of kept growing. So it definitely snowballed. It was amazing. And it was Again, I feel like it was an accident. It was the easy way, if possible, to kind of start a firm. And 16 years later, we just kind of, we keep rolling. Keep doing it, right? (laughs) Yeah. And listen, we looked you up on LinkedIn. I mean, I think whoever was questioning, like, do you have, have you worked on projects of this scope, size or scale? You'd be like, 
you know, I want everyone to know Johanna worked on the SAP implementation for Coca-Cola, 35,000 users. So if you have a bigger implementation than that, also give her a call because. <laughs> right. And that's what we use. I'm like, I don't know. At the time, it was the largest install of SAP. So I feel like we definitely have the size. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's many companies more than 35,000 headcount. That's, that's pretty substantial. Yeah. <laughs> and that one, was a, that one was definitely a lot of fun. We've gone from botanists to pharmaceuticals. We had, we had a huge agricultural company out of Europe that was amazing. And you would think, you know, again, how agricultural science, an army full of botanists, how does that translate to cybersecurity? Oh my gosh, they were so innovative and the amount of work that we did with them was fantastic. And then you switch over to the to pharma or higher ed. I mean, we definitely have fun with the amount of, you know, of not just identities that we're dealing with, but the breadth of you know clients and use cases. So yeah, at the end of the day, every single one of these companies is the same. We just talked about the same problems, right? They have critical IP that is worth a substantial amount of dollars. So whether you're in pharma, whether you're in ag, even though I'm in ag, ag is just science. Like they they have they're developing innovations, processes. They have huge billable accounts. Like we've had Bayer Crop Science on our show before, and like the amount of dollar size value of their contracts and vendor spend is astronomically high. That's one side. And then that's the value, the goal that the, the, the hackers want to get, or we, we already want to call them bad actors. And on the other side, I still believe everyone behaves more like inevitably someone who behaves like me in a company that has uh, 35,000 employees is certainly going to have a couple hundred that really aren't going to follow your process. So this problem will always exist. And you guys are fighting the good fight to, to make it better. It reminds me of uh, another time I met with um. It was another person on another podcast, but he was a he was a deputy commander for JSOC, the military. And he goes in the history, and he said it best, right? In the history of mankind, humankind, however you want to state it, there's always been somebody who was dissatisfied with what they had and would was willing to take what you had, and that has never changed since the history of humanity. This is just who we are, and so like this fight of protecting information, it's never going to stop because information, as we know, is gold. If I can get this, right? We just talked about it. An account number can literally be worth $50 million. It's a 10-digit string. If you can get it, you can get yourself $50 million just like that. Yeah. Or more. Yeah. And I mean, technology, if you go to the RSA conference, I mean, now it's like spilled over into every part of San Fran. There's so much technology. Every second, there's like 50 new companies that are coming up for how to protect. But it still comes back to the people behind it. It's still back to the people that are that are working in that technology every day and the guy that doesn't care about the policy, the guy that has the post-it note on the top of his computer, the guy that doesn't go through the certification process. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so that's the guy I'm looking for. I have to protect the company from that guy. It's completely true. I mean, if we go back to the original story I told at the top of the show, Hush Puppy, the reality is, this is what people have a hard time with. Had Hush Puppy been happy with his initial haul, he probably would have never been caught. Yeah. It's that he kept taking more, more so that he started building more evidence against them. But if he was good with the first couple of million he stole, he would have never been caught. And there's so many people like that, you know, that are just and there are people inside that are they're socially uh, motivated to do similar things. So they either don't like what the organization is doing. So they go from that good employee to a hacktivist because they just want to strike out against an organization. So you're, you're protecting against so many threats coming from different directions. Just the knowledge of all of these things kind of swirling around you helps a company protect from both of those. But yeah, everybody's greedy. They want something. So how are we educating them to, to find it? Johanna, it's awesome having you on the show. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Johanna, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work 
so that our audience gets to know you better. You ready? I'm ready. Straight up on LinkedIn, you describe yourself as a pint-sized badass. Okay. Some people call you the storm. <laughs> yeah. I want to know how tall are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm five one. You say that you say that you're stretching it. Are you actually five foot one? I am five one. With heels, I really go to that five. I try to wear really high heels to stretch it, but yeah, I'm five. <laughs> have you found that being, because pint size, you clearly stated in your LinkedIn, how has being smaller impacted your career, you think? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, people definitely don't expect much from me because I'm, I guess I'm tiny. I mean, I am, I am smaller than most, which is why I, I like to wear heels to at least get a little bit of lift. No, I mean, I'm very unassuming. So they're not expecting what comes out when I open my mouth. Then this leads right into your philosophy. I am the storm. What does that mean? I definitely try to use that to my advantage. I mean, I'll say I'm, I'm happy when I'm underestimated because I can definitely come out with way more than they were expecting. But no, I mean, I think from just personally in my past and then at work, I mean, I've definitely overcome enough, but I, I am not a shrinking violet. So when they say something's brewing, it's usually me, you know, so I, I will go head on into the attack. I'm definitely not the one running the other way. Sounds like someone not to cross. That sounds good. <laughs> but I'm kind about it. <laughs> I'm very kind about it. No, it's, and you know, I, I definitely have a, a very positive, you know, approach to it. I mean, that's, it shows in the company too. I mean, that we're all about people. It's really important to me, but yes, I, I'm <laughs> between the storm and the hammer. I apparently have gotten a couple of, Impressive nicknames. <laughs> For a lot of people to build businesses after a career, usually they've overcome some type of fear. Fear is often a limiting factor. What's something that you were that you used to be fearful of that you've now overcome, and how did you overcome it? Oh, uh, I definitely speaking. I mean, I, I was okay in a room. I was average. I mean, I came from, again, an accounting background. I wasn't typically, you know, the person that would stand up and give a speech to 500. So I would, you know, oh, I'm starting to panic. But yeah, after, after doing it enough, after getting way more comfortable and just more rooted, I think it's definitely been a lot easier for me to have conversations like this and not completely panic beforehand. <laughs> well, listen, if you can't speak, you can't sell. Someone on the founding team has to be able to sell the job. Otherwise you're in trouble. Yeah. And if they can't believe in me, we got big issues. So yeah. <laughs> you also, excuse me, declare that you are a mom on your LinkedIn profile. How many children do you have? I have three. I have three. And I have a almost 12 year old and I have twin nine-year-olds. <laughs> Twins. That's less like our founder. Uh, mission founder has twins as well, but they're, they're all under, uh, they're all under three years old. So based on that math, it sounds like you at one point had three under three. Yeah, it was, uh, that was dicey at best. I would not recommend <laughs> the immediate transition to zone. I like a man on man coverage. This was a problem <laughs> very quickly, but no, they're, they're a lot of fun. It's definitely a sociology experiment in my house. Like just to have two combating each other from the twin standpoint, but it's fun. So now we got, we have an interesting timeline on you because it's pretty clear based on this timeline that you were then operating as a CEO of a business, as well as starting a family with young children. How did you manage your time? What's some advice you could give to someone who's parenting plus trying to start a business? Time management is always the essential thing that everyone wants to know. How do you get more time? I always say there is no secret. You have to sleep less. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And that, that's a myth. Yeah. And people complain like, okay, you really need to get some more sleep. I, you know, I'm like, I, look, I will get as much sleep as I need, but yeah, I'm not like an eight hour kind of gal. That's never going to work out. 
I'm definitely a five hour and I'm okay. I can go a few days with less than that, but that's just how it goes. I mean, again, I have three active kids. My older has special needs. I'm running all the time. And I, I enjoy that. But people always say, oh, you have to find balance. There's no balance. But I will say harmony is very important. You know, the kids sometimes take priority. The business sometimes takes priority. But they know that. You know, I'm, I'm also a single mom. So it's me and three kids. And we're, we are definitely running and gunning all the time. How they interact with me at work, how they know when I have to transition to one versus the other, I think that's most important is you figure out what those priorities are. And if it's, you know what, every Friday, I'm going to get dinner on the table, then, you know, maybe you have to cut out some things that you volunteer for, or that you're doing at work, or you get it done earlier in the week. But yeah, having that list and kind of checking things off and putting the priority down is for me has been the the most important before they were all a 10, like everything had to be done. You know, this is a stage to everything's falling apart. I had to really get to basics on what's the most critical right now. Johanna, thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your life. Thanks for sharing a little bit about how you operate at S3. And I agree, you have a battle worth fighting. We'll have to keep in touch as you develop new strategies to how to control people or not control. Control is such a tough word because like, oh, I'm trying to possess people. But like, how let's say convince people to be more secure. I don't know what the best to describe it, but this is not, this battle's not going, it's not going to be solved anytime soon. And so we'll be curious to hear how, how it's evolving with you and your organization as well. It's been great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. 